It begins like a trial. Sanctuary has become a courtroom, and we, the congregation, have become the defendants. The charges against us? Many. Generations in the making, coming from the highest plaintiff in the land. God, creator of life, giver of free will, coming now to contend with the actions of his people. And Micah says, all rise, plead your case before the mountains, right outside these doors. Go ahead, let the hills hear your voice. Let every single square inch of creation listen in to this controversy of the Lord. This text is not one to make us drowsy or comfortable. The controversy, as the NRSV states, ought to put us on the edge of our seats. The Hebrew word for this assumes contention, and as a verb can be rendered to noisily clamor. So yeah, we should feel a bit defensive, because the truth is we don't have a chance at winning this case. The bailiff can give us all the time in the world, and we can hire the best lawyers around, but even their greatest arguments will eventually fall mute. Still, since when have humans resisted the urge to argue? It's one of the first signs of independence a child can show. It may be unpleasant to hear a toddler say no once or a gazillion times. It is. But it's what they're supposed to do. It's a sign of free will and agency. Our scriptural ancestors set just such an example for us, arguing with God, including the browbeaten Job, who felt caught at the tail end of an unfair existential trial, and whose dialogues with friends and God are also described as a controversy, a noisy clamoring back and forth. Understanding the human inclination to argue, even with God, four brave souls step forward in Micah's depiction of the sanctuary-turned-courtroom. A choir member says, Shall I bow down low for the Lord on high? Thinking, surely, better worship is what God desires. A young adult says, Shall I bring more offerings, maybe a tithe of my last paycheck? Surely, bigger gifts to the church will bring me good fortune. A well-off executive says, Will God be impressed with an estate auction? Seed money for a new capital campaign. Surely, there's some gesture that's grand enough to clear my name. An overworked underpaid woman speaks last, shall I give the firstborn? Shall I give away the fruit of my body for my own sins? Surely I've nothing more to give. God might as well strip away my joy and livelihood too. So what's the verdict? What is it God wants from us? Better worship? Bigger offerings? Flashier gestures? Our very joys and dreams? When removed from its context, the words of Micah 6.8 are beautiful and good and inspiring. They offer a wisdom that's universal. 
so universal it can sometimes sound a little generic. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It could sound even more generic when that middle line is translated love kindness, but the Hebrew word hesed is much more potent and consequential than our understanding of kindness. It demands something like a steadfast love and action. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. These words are beautiful, which is why you'll find them on shirts or bumper stickers. They are inspiring because they can transcend cultures. And they are good. At close to 3,000 years old, they're even more good and inspiring for us today. But how do they fit in the larger context of the book? What have the people in Micah's day been doing to deserve such a divine reprimand? Why is the God who delivered them from slavery now seeking to lock them up with a death sentence? Surely that's the aim, right? A guilty verdict after an open-shut case resulting in some sort of severe punishment. During our years of seminary, Martha Ann and I had a mission immersion experience in Argentina. For two weeks, our team, a small team of students and professors, went to Buenos Aires to learn about Christianity from our Latin American sisters and brothers. It was my first mission trip that wasn't really a traditional mission trip, by which I mean we didn't go and fix anything or build anything or give anything away. We didn't go and do so much as we went and were there, learning history and language, customs, and an awful lot about God and God's churches in that part of the world. One of the most staggering lessons for me came in the form of a five-minute walk. We were staying at this Baptist seminary in Buenos Aires, a seminary that dates back over a hundred years one morning, we had a lecture from one of the professors about the life of the school. Their local history was interconnected with their national history, particularly the events of the Dirty War that took place in Argentina in the late 1970s and early 80s. During these frightful years, the fear of socialism and left-wing dissonance led to staggering acts of violence and political suppression ultimately resulting in the disappearance of some 30,000 people from their country. Many of these were young adults, picked out because of their education level, their civic engagement, perhaps an interest in journalism or art, politics, social activism. They'd often be taken from their homes in the dead of night dragged off to God only knows where, and then never seen from again. Our hosting Argentine professor spoke at length about the sense of depression and shame that haunted local Christians in the years following the Dirty War. The church and the seminary had really striven to remain vibrant in those dreadful years, but was also cautious about bringing extra scrutiny on its own faithful members. So the lecture went, compelling, but not yet so personally consequential, until we took a five-minute walk, literally 100 yards down the street 
from the seminary to what looked like a generic and weather-worn factory warehouse. A rough exterior, 30 feet or so high, taking up the better part of an entire block. In this singular building, across the span of the dirty war, it turns out that some 7,000 people were disappeared from off the face of the earth, dragged here to what became known as the Olympo, under the gruesome cover of night and political fear-mongering, corralled like cattle until these beloved children of God could be permanently removed, wiped from social memory. At least that was the intent. 100 yards away from the Baptist Seminary, just a leisurely stroll down the road from students trying to locate and answer the call of Christ in their lives, praying, reading, dreaming, training for Christian service, seeking out the presence of Christ, even as Christ was being crucified again and again in the pain and agony just a few blocks away. How do Micah's words of justice and mercy and humility resound in the midst of such a place? It's one thing to root for justice to prevail when I'm a mere bystander or when blatant injustice is being done by someone else. But it's another thing altogether to do justice myself, especially when it means assuming personal risk and not repaying violence for even more violence. It's one thing to love mercy when it's applied to me and those I love and care for. It's another thing altogether to love mercy, period, even when applied to my enemies and the enemies of those under my care. It's one thing to show humility before God. It's another thing altogether to walk with humility, which means to endure for quite some time with a bent and burdened posture, to carry a hardship step after step after step. When we were in Argentina, we saw firsthand the mothers of the disappeared ones. They marched weekly on the presidential palace for over 30 years, still demanding answers, seeking justice. That is a humbling and enduring walk. This courtroom trial that Micah is presiding over, is it something like the dirty war that's happened in Israel's history? What were the atrocities committed and what role did the faithful play through their inactions or their actions. If we were to take the entire book and just highlight the laundry list of evil deeds committed, here's what we'd find. They've plotted wickedness from their beds, meditating on cruelty by night and enacting it by day because it's in their power. They've coveted the homes of others, seizing them through false charges, high interest rates, and hard-hearted foreclosures. They've pushed people into homelessness, particularly widowed women, and their children. They've promoted warmongering, stripping the robe of the peaceful, as Micah says. They've latched on to false prophets who are nothing more than self-serving crowd-pleasers, phonies who say peace only when their bellies are full and their pockets are lined. They've chosen rulers who are likened to cannibals, 
for the ways they've broken, ripped, and devoured the livelihood of the poor and the downtrodden. They've taken bribes in courts and in sanctuaries alike, fueled by greed, selfishness, vanity, same old stuff. They've perverted justice and equality all across the land and have made a mockery of their religious heritage and calling. This is the backdrop to the courtroom scene. The stacked up evidence that's been mounting for generations, high enough now for everyone to see. Unfortunately, it's not a set of charges unique to Israel's own particular history. We could find hard evidence of allegations like these in most global societies, including our own. The Argentine Baptist had to learn that the hard way when they finally realized the gut-wrenching fate of the disappeared ones taking place right underneath their noses. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, for the Lord is bringing noisy clamor to his people. The Lord will contend with them. Are we to hear this passage as mere bystanders in the courtroom? As God brings an open-shut case against the likes of those perpetrators of the dirty war? Because if so, well, I think I could do that. I may even long to hear a guilty verdict decreed, to see justice done after such egregious violence and such an unfair season of waiting. I think of the vindictive feeling that arises when watching pretty much any nonstop, high-action, low-dialogue vengeance movie so fun to watch. Rambo, Die Hard, Kill Bill, John Wick. In the name of overdue justice, I can easily forget about loving mercy. I remember a time in high school when one of the big guys in our grade started to bully me. Now, it never got out of hand, thankfully, but there's one scene that I can easily replay in my mind because it's odd and humorous. And, spoiler alert, I come out on top. (laughs) It was between classes, and I was bent down at my locker, swapping books, papers, maybe even changing out some things in my trapper keeper. (sighs) All of a sudden, I felt this hot, stinging sensation top of my right earlobe. I turned around, and there was Daryl. He had thumped me. Seriously, who thumped someone at a locker? I don't know, but Daryl did that day. He was big, imposing, apparently some sort of hand athlete with his extremely powerful flicking muscles. (laughs) He stood there kind of towering over me, and I really wasn't sure what would happen next. Another thump, or more likely, a push against the locker? That had happened. To this day, I'm not really sure what brought it on, but I knew that Daryl's thump was just the first part of his planned intimidation that morning. In that split second, ear on fire, I had to choose my preferred method of defense. Fight or flight? No, spite. As in spite him with vocal humiliation through my loud voice. 
You see, I had two older brothers who had spent years teaching me the art of sarcasm. <laughs> Thank you. At my own expense, typically. But now, just when I needed it, it sprang forth, enabling me to respond with seeming confidence, even as my body was trying to back away. Thanks, Thumper. What are you, some sort of Disney rabbit? Hey, look out, everyone. He's got fingers. <laughs> By this point, my loud voice had brought onlookers, peers who missed the initial action, but knew I was clearly now making fun of Daryl, seeing his posse now outnumbered by others who were coming closer, Daryl aborted, aborted plans for the big follow-up, and thankfully, the physical quarrel ended there. He scoffed off just as my heart rate came back down to double digits. In that moment, I didn't love mercy. I wasn't going for justice or humility. I was trying to win to come out on top, unbruised, unexposed, for the truth of who I really was, scared and small. Micah 6.8 is a verse that's easy to preach at the Daryls of the world. Sorry, Daryl, I do hope you are successful, maybe some sort of hand athlete, a paper football champion or something. I have no ill will for you. It's easy to preach Micah 6.8 at people who bully or intimidate. It's easy to apply this biblical wisdom to those who do so much worse, real or perceived. To anyone we can point our own fingers at, like all those men who were so quick to judge the adulterous woman and as they dragged her and only her out before Jesus. But as far as Micah is concerned, and unfortunately for us, we are not merely bystanders in this courtroom case. Neither were the men who encircled the adulterous woman in judgment, as Jesus swiftly made them realize. As I mentioned, Micah lays out a set of charges that are not unique to Israel's particular history. The opening words of Micah 1 make this plain. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against all of you, the Lord, from his holy temple, for lo, the Lord is coming out of his place. Everyone is on trial here, not just the powerful, the privileged, the egregious perpetrators, but everyone, even the would-be bystanders, and even, so it seems, the oblivious. It's a verdict that will be echoed at the end of Matthew. When did we see you, O Lord, hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked, sick or in prison? How many times have I stood by, uh, maybe 100 yards or so away from an act of terrible violence or injustice and did nothing? How much hurt and suffering have I leisurely strolled past in the course of my life, in the school hallways, along country roads, in the downtown squares? How much systemic injustice and deeply rooted prejudice have I created or ignored? time and time again, and what judgment am I now supposed to feel and fear? In any courtroom scene, there's real drama because real lives are at stake. Rulings have consequences. So, what is the verdict in this case? 
knowing that everyone in this place has fallen short time and again, should we brace ourselves for the impact of eternal punishment or lower our heads in shame and despair and depravity? No matter how this sacred book has been used in your life, this is a book of good news. There's a gospel message to be found all within its worn cover, including the words of the prophet Micah. Micah, Micah in Hebrew, is a name meaning who is like. Chapter by chapter, the prophet who is like poses this incomplete question, stacking a solid case of evidence that does not go in Israel's favor or our own. Who is like a guilty person on trial? Everyone, it turns out. But then, in chapter 7, the prophet reaches climactic resolve by confessing, Who is like you, God, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? God does not retain his anger forever because God delights in showing clemency. God will again have compassion upon us, will tread our iniquities underfoot, You, O God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. With God as our plaintiff, there is no request for punitive sentencing, no wish for death, only for life. Though the text works to thrust us into a courtroom-like atmosphere, Ultimately, it's a sanctuary we find ourselves sitting in, now and eternally. I have come that they may have life, Jesus says, not death, life with abundance. So what does the Lord require of us? To realize that real fulfillment always comes in the choosing of forgiveness over revenge, sacrifice over power, endurance over despair. We are compelled to love mercy because in the end, it's the only way that any one of us will actually find eternal life. The good news of Micah is one of restorative justice, restoring life to its sacred and most original intent. It should take us back to the imagery of the Garden of Eden. When God creates mortals in God's own image, breathes life into them, pronounces it all good. But like a garden, it takes work to see the beauty of justice and mercy spring forth, and it takes time. So take heart, wherever you find yourself today in the humble walk with God and neighbor. Real justice is not always served in this world, but together we can be a budding sacred city that resists vengeance, that loves mercy, that trusts that our prayer for judgment has already been granted. We're free to leave this place at any time, and in fact, we are called to do so, to go out of these doors and live in the way of Micah 6, 8, which is the way of Jesus, to the end that one day others may look to our behavior and our beliefs and ask themselves, who is like these peculiar people? with their grace-abounding sense of justice and mercy. Who is like that?
God is.